We are in Ezekiel, and we finished chapter 16 last time. And if you remember, the metaphor last time was of Jerusalem being an abandoned baby who God finds in a ditch after having been abandoned by her mother and raises her up and takes her as his wife. The metaphor that I use, which I still very much like, is it was like a young girl being married to a rich older man. He's stable. He's financially secure. He's not very exciting. So so she goes off in search of excitement and finds it. And then as her life goes on, the youthful attractiveness that she had to begin with starts to fade and by the end instead of going out and being a wild party girl with everybody chasing her she now has to pay people to come to her party so it's very much a metaphor if you will that's what we did last week so this week we're going to do a shift here and we're going to do a parable So I'm in chapter 17. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top off the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its twigs and carried it into a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, and its root remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. So all of this is obviously going to be explained in a minute, for those of you who have read ahead. But what we're talking about is the eagle is Nebuchadnezzar. And as you remember from several times that we've talked about this, this particular chunk of Ezekiel is written between Nebuchadnezzar's first and second trips to Israel. So what the first part of this parable then is, is reflective of Nebuchadnezzar's first trip, where he goes and conquers the place, but he doesn't destroy it. And in fact, he takes the best of Israel's noble youngsters back with him to Babylon. And by the way, that's the city of merchants. And it is that way all the way through Revelation. So when we get to Revelation, we find, you know, Babylon has fallen. And the people who are crying for Babylon when she falls are the merchants, the captains of ships who transport goods and so forth. So the idea here of Babylon being a place of merchants is consistent throughout Scripture all the way out to Revelation. So anyway, Nebuchadnezzar comes and he takes the top off of the cedar tree. And the top is, of course, Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who he takes back to Babylon with him 
and has them become part of his court. So that's the metaphor here. And the part about the seed being planted in fertile soil is he leaves behind a caretaker king, Zedekiah, and protects him and so forth and sets him in fertile soil and so forth. So Israel continues to grow after having been humbled by Babylon. Going back to the previous chapters and so forth, the idea is Israel has become corrupt, has become arrogant, has become fat, and what the first trip by Nebuchadnezzar did was knock her down to size. Her hat was too big for her, and Nebuchadnezzar came and knocked her hat off. So the idea was she should have gotten the message at that point that God is dealing with her, and because of all of the things that both Ezekiel and Jeremiah are saying about her, she should have known why. So the fact that she's been humiliated, the fact that she's now a vassal state of Babylon, the fact that the cream of her nobility has been taken back to Babylon to be in his court, the fact that the temple has been looted because Nebuchadnezzar took all the gold and silver implements out of the temple on his first trip, The idea was she should have figured this out. She doesn't. And hence we get to the second part of the parable. Because remember, this prophecy is being written between the first and the second Babylonian trips. And what the first part of this prophecy is talking about is God is explaining to Israel This is what has happened to you. This is why it happened. And you need now to come back to me. You need now to humble yourself. You need now to get rid of your foreign gods. You need to do all of that because I have, how shall we say it, chastened you rather lightly at this point. And they don't. They don't take the hint. So the second thing that, of course, is now going to happen is the eagle is going to come again. So now we're all the way down to verse 7. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters, that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Another great eagle, that's Egypt. Historically, what happens is Zedekiah, when he is left in charge of the place, he then turns to Egypt and tries to make an alliance with Egypt for the purpose of throwing off Babylon. So that's what this second eagle is. Another great eagle with great wings and much plumage, and behold, the vine bent its roots toward him. In other words, the vine is Israel who was left there and planted by Nebuchadnezzar, the vassal state of Israel. And what that vine then does is it turns toward Egypt with the idea of coming up with a better deal. Thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its root and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? Will it not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots? 
Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it? Wither away on the bed where it sprouted. All right, east wind. One of the things that you will notice in scripture is east winds represent judgment. For example, in Exodus, when you have a wind blowing in a plague of locusts, the wind comes from the east with the plague of locusts, and then when Pharaoh asks to have it removed, the wind comes from the west and gets rid of it. So the idea of an east wind in scripture is judgment. The idea here in verse 10, will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it? wither away on the bed where it sprouted. So it is also the case, obviously, that Babylon is to the east of Israel. So combination of an east wind representing judgment and the fact that the judgment is going to come from Babylon, which is also in the east. Verse 11. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to him, to Babylon. Verse 13. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away. What's happened is the top of the tree has been taken to Babylon. That's Daniel and a whole bunch of other folks. What he then does is takes Zedekiah, who is of the line in the house of David, and makes him king, and then takes an oath from him that he will be a loyal vassal to Nebuchadnezzar. That's what's going on here. So in verse 13, he took one of the royal offspring, Zedekiah, and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath. In other words, he made Zedekiah swear an oath to be a faithful vassal king. So putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up, and keep its covenant that it might stand. God humbled Israel with Nebuchadnezzar on the first trip, but he did not destroy them. And the idea was that they would get the message and humble themselves before God. Verse 15. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? This requires a little talking about the covenant that is made with Zedekiah, one could argue, is made under duress. You got the whole place full of hairy Babylonians, and they're all looking at you over the tops of their shields and saying, would you like to make a covenant with us? Hmm? And you really don't have much choice in the matter. So you could look at it as this is a covenant made under duress, and so is not binding. God, however, is regarding it as binding. Why? Because God himself set it up. You all know about the 70 years. The 70 years is, in fact, 
the length of time that the Babylonian Empire lasts. This is the Neo-Babylonian, not the Babylonian Empire under Hammurabi, which is much older. So the new Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar lasts almost to the day 70 years. So when God decides to chasten Israel, he, God, elevates Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. They come over, humiliate Israel, go back, and 70 years later, almost to the day, they are taken over by the Medes and the Persians. If you read your history and compare it with Scripture, it's very obvious that what God did is said, these guys are my instrument to humble Israel. And since Israel doesn't get the message, what's going to happen, obviously, the second time is Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back and he's going to be grumpy. And he, in fact, is going to sand the place down. The temple is going to be destroyed. Zedekiah is going to see his children slaughtered in his presence. And then he himself is going to be blinded and carried off to Babylon where he's going to die. You violate my covenant, I get grumpy is sort of the message there. And as I say, since the covenant is made under duress, one could argue that it is not sinful to go and say, you made me take this oath with a sword at my throat, therefore I don't feel bound by it. It's like if a kidnapper has got your kid and demands a ransom and demands that you promise not to go to the police, you may say that in order to save your children, but as soon as your children are safe, you turn immediately around and go to the cops. In other words, you don't feel bound by such an oath. And in fact, in law, you are not bound by such an oath. The reason God sees it as binding is because God is the one that set it up. So God is the one that moved Nebuchadnezzar to come the first time. God is the one that moved Nebuchadnezzar not to destroy the place the first time. God is the one that moved Nebuchadnezzar to set up a puppet king, all of which is to humble Israel. So as far as God is concerned, he is the author of all of this. And when Israel tries to weasel out from under it, he's not amused. So as in verse 15, the idea of Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? You have to really think about this for a minute because it is not a voluntary covenant. It's a forced covenant. Verse 16, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. The grammar here requires a little unpacking. So, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king. The king who made him king is Nebuchadnezzar. So where the king dwells, Nebuchadnezzar, who made him, Zedekiah, king, whose oath he despised. So Zedekiah despises the oath that Nebuchadnezzar made him Take, whose oath he despised and whose covenant with him, Nebuchadnezzar, he, Zedekiah, broke. In Babylon, he, Zedekiah, shall die. So verse 17. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war. 
when mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives. He despised the oath in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. So God is treating him as a faithless oath breaker. God is seeing that whatever happens to him now is justified because he broke an oath. Let's pick it up at 18 again. He despised the oath in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. In other words, he shook hands on the oath. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it was my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. So God is regarding this as something he set up, and Nebuchadnezzar is simply the agent. Verse 20, I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, and enter into judgment with him there, for the treachery he has committed against me. Notice, not the treacheries against Nebuchadnezzar, but the treachery against God. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken. The thing that you have to understand is this prophecy is not given in Israel, it's given in Babylon. And what it's doing is explaining to the exiles in Babylon why what is about to happen to Israel is about to happen. The parallel is, of course, the prophecies of Jeremiah, which are given in Israel, and those are given to Zedekiah and his court. And Zedekiah is not pleased has him thrown in the jail, has all sorts of stuff, because he isn't pleased, but Jeremiah is giving him the same information. So verse 22, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. Remember we started this off with big tall tree that had its top taken off. So now we're back to the metaphor of the tree, and what's happened as a result of this prophecy is that big tall tree has been destroyed. That's Nebuchadnezzar's second trip. He's going to destroy that big tall tree. However, there is going to be a branch coming from a dry shoot that is going to be planted in Israel, and that's the Messiah. He's a dry twig, and he blooms and all that kind of stuff, Isaiah and all that. So that's what's being said here. God himself will take a descendant of David. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. So... 
we will take the original lofty cedar, break off a twig, that will be planted in Israel, and that planted twig will grow up into the Messiah while the original tree is chopped down and destroyed. That's the metaphor that's going on here. And what he says is that twig will be planted in Israel, which is to say Israel is going to come back into the land. And this here is talking about Yeshua, who is going to be a descendant of David. In other words, a tender twig from the topmost of the original tree, which is the royalty of Israel, which is the line of David. So I'm going to take a twig from there. I'm going to plant that twig in the land. The twig is going to grow up, and the current tree is going to be cut down. The metaphor here, I will bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. In other words, the dry tree is Israel after it has been destroyed. Comment was, birds are evil. Undifferentiated birds seem to be used as evil. They're the ones that eat the slain, and you got birds in the mustard bush. You've got birds that come and steal the seed in the parable of the sower. Seed cast on the road, and the birds come and eat it and snatch it away before anybody can take it up. In the parable, that's explained that the birds represent Satan, who steals the word. Similarly, the other thing that you have is whenever God is being grumpy with Israel, he says, I am going to strew your slain corpses over the ground and the birds will come and eat them. We have the birds that come and eat the bread off of the baker in Joseph's dreams. So undifferentiated birds seem to consistently represent bad things. Named birds, eagles, ravens, those are used differently. And you have to go back to Daniel. And you remember Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a cedar tree. It's this massive cedar tree, and everybody receives shade under the cedar tree, and they eat the fruit of it, and birds nest in the cedar tree. And the cedar tree is the thing that sustains people. In other words, his reign is a good reign. Has anybody ever seen Lawrence of Arabia? Anthony Quinn, who's the Arab tribal leader in there, when he's talking to Peter O'Toole, who's Lawrence of Arabia, one of the things he's saying as he's bragging is he says, I am a river to my people, which is to say, I, as their leader, am a really good leader, and I provide. So because I'm the leader, I'm like a river to my people. Same idea with this tree. This tree that provides shelter and provides a place of nesting, provides shade that people can come under it and so forth. This is all symbolic of a good ruler. So the metaphor there is tall, stately, provides shade, provides food for the subjects of this king. And I don't have any idea what kind of fruit a cedar produces that you could eat. So we're done with chapter... So we're now on chapter 18. The word of the Lord came to me. 
What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. What I am inferring this means is you got all of these people sitting in Babylon. And they are sort of of the opinion that God is unjust. We are good people. Why are we here? Oh, it must be because we're being punished for the sins of our fathers. That's what the parable seems to mean. And certainly in Exodus, God does say that he will bring the sins of the father sometime to the third and fourth generation. Now, what's going to happen here is he is going to unpack this, and I'll sort of give you a preview of what's going on there. There are several passages of scripture which seem on their face to be contradictory. So, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Boy, that seems like if your grandfather sinned, great-grandchild could all of a sudden get hit by a brick and have no idea what's going on. That's what that sounds like. The other part in Deuteronomy, it says that fathers will not be put to death for the sins of their sons, and sons will not be put to death for the sins of their fathers. Those would seem contradictory. The way I unpack that is we have cultures. And what happens is if you get a generation that goes into sinful behavior, they raise their children up to see that that kind of behavior is acceptable. And so what happens is the sins of the fathers continue down through generations not because there's some sort of weird juju going on, but because fathers pass on to their children their sinful behavior, and that becomes the behavior of their children. That's what I think it means. So what is happening here in Ezekiel is I'm inferring that the exiles are doing the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation, and they are saying, well, the reason we're here is because our fathers sinned. Says so in the Torah. And what God is going to say here is, no, that isn't what's going on at all. You're here for your own sins. And so, starting in verse 4, he explains, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. Now this is going to be repeated 
several more times. Most of this should be obvious to you because it's Torah 101. There's one thing in there that may cause you to pause, and I'll explain that. So verse 8, does not lend at interest or take any profit. That would seem to indicate that making a profit is a bad thing. That's not what it's saying. Obviously, lending at interest to a fellow Israelite is forbidden. It is not forbidden to lend at interest to a Gentile. That's specifically stated in Torah, that if your brother needs to borrow money and he's a fellow Hebrew, you can't charge him interest. Taking a profit, what that is known as is a discounted loan. So, you come to me for a loan, and I lend you $200, but I only give you 190 So, your debt to me is 200 but I only gave you 190 so I have $10 of profit built into that loan. It isn't lending an interest. I mean, it's not technically interest, but it's the same concept. What you're doing is you are making a profit off of lending to your brother. That's what's being said there. Anybody got any problem with any of the rest of these things? I think they're all pretty clear from Torah 101. So what it says here is the man who behaves righteously and behaves in accordance with Torah is righteous, and he shall live, declares the Lord God. Verse 10, if he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things. So the son does things the father does not. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, eating upon the mountain is eating before an idol, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lift up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest and takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. What it's being said here is you have a righteous father who sires an unrighteous son, and it says that the son is responsible for his own sins, the father is not. Verse 14. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. All right, now, so this man who fathers a son is the son of the righteous guy. So now we're at the grandson of the first guy. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains, nor lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity, he shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So you have grandfather, father, son. Righteous, corrupt, righteous. 
That's the deal. This goes back to what I was saying earlier about stuff going down to the third and fourth generation. The question becomes, does grandson get the message and straighten out, or does grandson continue to walk in the ways of his father? Think Hunter Biden. Joe Biden was totally corrupt and like father and like son. So what you're having is something that will go down through generations. Verse 19. Yet you say, this yet you say is, all right, you are saying something that is wrong. You can always tell that that's what's about to happen when you see that phrase. Yet you say, which is to say, the thing you say is wrong. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. So going back to our original proverb, what do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So what the proverb says is if the father was corrupt, then the children will suffer the consequences of that corruption. So back here in verse 19 of the same chapter, yet you say, we're referring back to that proverb. So yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? The proverb is, we have an iniquitous father, therefore the son should suffer. God says, no. When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Verse 21. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed, and keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him, for the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. In other words, if you repent, and repent, of course, means stop the wrong that you were doing and turn around and go in the other direction. What you have here is a textbook definition of what repentance is. So, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. In other words, what is the point of sending all these prophets and getting all these warnings if it doesn't matter? I keep sending you prophets with the hope that you're going to turn around and stop doing it so that I don't have to punish you. If this phrasing from verse 21 through verse 23 were not true, then there would be no point in sending a prophet. 24. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done will be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. So the whole thing is you can be totally, totally righteous, but molest one choir boy, 
and nobody remembers all the good stuff that you did. That's what's being said here. The proverb is, a single dead fly spoils the whole pot of ointment. So the 99.9% of the ointment may smell just fine, but that dead fly ruins it all. 25. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. So what is the way of the Lord that is not just? Well, I don't know. Because remember their proverb is the father's sin and the son's teeth are set on edge. God says that is not true. But Israel believes it. So apparently Israel believes, as in the previous paragraph, that if the father sinned, then there's something due to the son. So 25 again. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. So that's what apparently is regarded as unjust. I just molested one choir boy. Oh, come on. Come on, man. That may be what's going on. It's sort of like the person who's lived an entirely wicked life and repents on his deathbed. Or the parable of the laborers in the field, where you got the people that come early in the day and work all day in the hot sun, and the last one that shows up before quitting time gets the same wage. Those are all examples of this. So down to verse 28. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? So this sounds very much like the parable of the laborers in the field and all that kind of stuff that he's slapping them around for. Verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest your iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. What I take from this is... With the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. This whole chapter has been by way of correcting Israel's misunderstanding or perverse understanding of the character of God. So God says, if you're righteous, you'll live. If you're corrupt, you'll die. You're not responsible for your father's sins. You're not responsible for your children's sins. Furthermore, if you've lived a sinful life and you repent, you'll live. If you lived a good life up until whatever, and then you go into wickedness, you're going to die. Now, Israel, you're saying that that's not just. What God is saying is, yes, it is just. 
And furthermore, I am going to ask you to turn from your wicked ways. Otherwise, I will judge you according to the standard that I have just laid out. And one of the things that happens in the Gospels is Yeshua says, by the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And the problem that Israel has here is false weights and measures in a moral sense. Their weights and measures morally are corrupt. And so what God is saying is because your weights and measures are corrupt, I will use the same standard that you are using to deal with you. Therefore, repent and get on my standard. And as I have just said, if you do that, you'll live.